If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. Lean into your questions and your doubts until you find that God is out here in the wilderness too. Sarah Bessie. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. Today we're talking with Sarah Bessie. She's a best-selling and critically acclaimed author. She's also the co-founder of Evolving Faith and co-host of the Evolving Faith podcast. And of course, there's countless ways that I think a lot of us have been touched by Sarah's work and I can't even get into it with an intro. So we're just really excited to have you today, Sarah, to talk about some of this stuff. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of our listeners know you on some level, but can you tell us a little bit about what does your normal average day look like? What does your family look like? And then outside of all of this stuff that you do, what makes your heart come alive? Those are all great ways of asking those questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess in terms of what my family looks like, we live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which is where I'm from. Um, My husband, Brian, and I have been married for, oh, 22 years, I think, right about there. (laughs) We were university sweethearts. Uh, He's American. And we have four kids. Um, They range from grade 11 all the way down to grade two. So we have a lot of stages going on at once. Everything from learning to drive the first minivan to, you know, losing your front teeth. Uh, We had our first three kids in four years and then had one last little baby there at the end. So kind of got, you know, three that are teens and tween and then Maggie's just our youngest there. So our days have, I think, some pretty loose routines to them. You know, our kids go to neighborhood schools here. Brian and I both work from home. And the kids all have kind of a lot of interests that keep, you know, our, our evenings and our weekends pretty full. My eldest daughter plays varsity basketball and has, you know, kind of all the grade 11 kind of stuff kind of happening right now. And then we've got play rehearsals. We like to spend a lot of time together as a family. We eat meals together pretty much every night. I think, you know, Brian and I were in ministry really early in our marriage. And we both came up and from um, highly engaged churches that required so much time Mm. where every bit of your family time and energy was kind of revolved around church. And so I think that maybe that's part of why we so highly value like a slower pace and having margin for each other and Having room for our kids to explore their interests and us to be supportive and present, you know, for all of those sorts of things. So that may be actually part of why we we have some of those values and some of those routines. But in terms of what makes my heart come alive, 
I mean, obviously my family, right? I find a lot of, I don't mean that like in a Sunday school, like answering Jesus or the Bible for everything sort of way. Like I just, I genuinely do find a lot of meaning and purpose and and joy and goodness in my marriage uh, and in being, you know, a mom to our kids. And so being outside really close to nature, I think that's still my favorite cathedral. We spend a lot of time out there. I read a lot, very widely, very promiscuously, everything from theology to rom-coms and everything in between. And I'm a very basic knitter, but a very passionate knitter. And I do love to write. That's that's a thing I've always done. I'm like, oh, wow, look at her knit that thing. I don't know if I could ever knit <laughs> Knit anything. Yeah, I don't know if I would call what you do like novice knitting. Like you knit, didn't you knit like a whole sweater? Like I do, I do. I can, you know, when when you are aware of like the the heights to which some people can attain, I feel very much not going to wear it. But I am. I've been knitting since I think I started when my second was born. So it would it's almost fifteen years now. Yeah. What what's a not novice knitter? That's my question. <laughs> what do they knit? I mean, a sweater's pretty they, involved. Amount of like color work and cables um, and details yeah. that people can do. Like I yeah. I I'm good at what I do, but I'm I haven't really flown to the highest of heights by any stretch. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, dream dream big. I've got I've got so much to it to aspire to. Still. So yes. much. So much. So many of us have been following your faith journey for a long time or a while, and we're really grateful for your vulnerability to us. For those who are new, if you had to describe your faith background in one word, what would it be and why? And then we'll go to, if you had to describe your faith journey now, where you currently find yourself, what would be that one word? Mm, That is a good question. Well, I mentioned earlier, like that I, I came of age in kind of really small happy, clappy churches here in Western Canada. You know, our religious landscape, I think, looked a lot different than how a lot of Americans, you know, have have their experience or their background. Like it wasn't my generation that stopped going to church. It was like my grandparents' generation, Mm. right? And so the notion of becoming people of faith was a turn your life upside down, you know, sort of thing for us. And so I came up in these sections of Christianity that were you know, connected to the charismatic renewal movements of the 80s and the 90s, a lot of word of faith and the prosperity gospel influences, those Pentecostal kind of adjacent practices with that, you know, kind of third wave charismatic kind of flavor. So the word that I would choose would probably best be like intense. It was just, it was just always intense, right? No matter what we did or didn't do, what we believed, what we practiced, it was with our whole hearts. And there is um, some good sides to that. And then there can also be some shadow sides, you know, for sure. And so, you know, I remember actually at our last Evolving Faith gathering at the end of 2022 there, I I remember saying to folks that many of us in this season of life feel like we've had our certainties all blown to hell. And it turned out that God was the one who lit the match. And my experience with deconstruction, like, especially in my twenties, when I kind of hit that, you know, I'm about to turn 44 right now. It was that chaotic and intense and experiential, like how my whole religious life had been. Like that's how my deconstruction was too, right? Was that level of intensity. And so finding myself now in this place of Mm -hmm. um, peacemaking and gentleness of love has been really deeply healing. And so I think that the word I would use now, I always need an editor because I always want to pick like 17 more words, but I would probably pick uh, goodness, Mm -hmm. right? That I found a lot of goodness in God 
a lot of goodness in so many of us, so much goodness in the world, goodness in the wilderness, even goodness in scripture again, uh, goodness in these smallest and, and really ordinary altars in our lives. I think growing up in a really intense religious environment almost demanded a detox. And so I'm grateful, you know, all the time for that stripping away. Um, that essentializing that deconstruction or, or faith shift has been in my life. And, and it even remains in my life. Right. Cause it's, it's, I mean, it's not over yet. Right. So. <laughs> right. Forever right. deconstructing. It's just a part of our, part of our faith really. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. It is funny how, when you have a understanding that this is just what the faith journey is designed to be, it's always supposed to be bigger and more expansive and God is supposed to be the bigger, the better. And, and yet we've just boxed them all up. Yeah. If you're not growing and changing and evolving, you're missing the whole invitation of your life. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Not paying attention. Well, let's read your quote again from the beginning. It says, lean into your questions and your doubts until you find that God is out here in the wilderness too. And we know that parenting, right? This is a parenting podcast, can often feel like we're wandering around without a path of clear direction. It almost feels like an endless wilderness. So how has your evolving faith journey influenced your parenting and vice versa? And how have you found God in the out here in the wilderness part of parenting? Yeah, that's a that's a part. I mean, even before we hit record, we were kind of talking a wee bit about how isolating you know, those experiences in the wilderness as a parent can be and how, how little resources and how little conversation, you know, so many of us have had. And that was, that was true for me, you know, becoming a parent transformed everything about my spiritual life. I had been in a place of what I now know would have been my first experience with deconstruction. Uh, didn't have that language then certainly didn't have any of the conversation that is happening now. But having my kids really began to shift my theology of God's love very deeply. I think that motherhood is probably the unsung root of almost everything when it comes to my experiences with an evolving faith, I think, which surprised me and probably surprised a lot of people around me too, to be honest, because I, I was never that maternal or nurturing kid, right? I was never that lady. I was never that that person who I I quit babysitting when I was fourteen because I was like, "There's got to be a better way to make money than this," you know. <laughs> Just, <laughs> that was not that was not going to be my story. And so, when that is what happened, um, and I grew to love mothering so much, and it was so deeply transformative for me. That's what happened, right? And so, even learning to see God as mother, or seeing these old stories through that lens now, breastfeeding was deeply transformative for me as I began to learn about like attachment theory mm -hmm. and security. And I know that not everybody has that experience with motherhood. And I'm not talking about this, like with the idea of it being like prescriptive or uh, normalized even, or, or the expectation, but it, it, it was my experience that if God was real and if any of this mattered, it had to be love mm. that whatever else it is, or it isn't that this was the foundation, the air we breathe, the place where we belong and so I found even since then that parenting um, continues to be like a very primary altar where I meet with God. I think sometimes maybe because it is so humbling and because you really genuinely don't know what you're doing, but it did shift something very deep um, in my theology towards a more beautiful and expansive, um, generous, welcoming, inclusive, just changed everything for me. 
Yeah. I feel like it's like when you start to really understand unconditional love, right? And and there's many ways that I think parenting really helps us along that journey, right? To understanding unconditional love, it changes the way that you see God's unconditional love for us playing out, right? Because before I understood it for myself, I'm thinking like, oh, unconditional love, like God loves us enough to send us to hell, right? And then you start to, like, you have children, and you're like, wait a second. Wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. That's like doesn't have anything to do with love, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it just it shifts your entire focus because now you understand and now this God of your entire lifetime no longer makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've talked to a bunch of people too. The idea that you want your kid to be included. Mm -hmm. I just always think like, I don't want, I want my kid to be included in the kindergarten class. I want them to be included at the lunch table in middle school. I just want them to be included so much that mm -hmm. it's like, how could there be a God that's not inclusive? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know so many people who, when their kid came out on the LGBTQ spectrum and they were excluded, it shifted for them. At the core of our mothering, we understand what how much we just desire for our kids to feel included and be belong. Mm -hmm. They belong, belong, belong. Mm -hmm. oh, so yeah, that's, that's so powerful. I love, I love that. Oh, so uh, you've written up four books, I think, and countless other words. Is that right? Four? Is it five? So many words. <laughs> so many. Lots of words. So many, many words. words. <laughs> Too many. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Liz and I feel you on that. I haven't written four books, but the words, words, words. Oh, so good. And there's such a lifeline. Your words are such a lifeline for so many of us. But let's say you could narrow down to pick one chapter that you would want your kids to read. Just one of your chapters. Mm. What chapter would it be in which book and why? That's a good question. I, my older two kids have read all my books. Oh, they um, have. They're big readers. My other two have flipped through looking for their names. Is what they have done. <laughs> I try not to do too much. That's one of those things that I'm, I don't know, that I've always found kind of interesting is like, there. that's a thread that runs through almost all my books is this idea of like mothering and children and those stories and those sorts of things kind of showing up, which maybe all of those would, would be meaningful. I think if I had to pick one, um, it would probably be a very short little chapter that's in um, a rhythm of prayer. It's called A Reminder. Hmm. I, th I think it's like two or three pages and it's just about the fact that we're loved and you have nothing left to prove or earn that it's the fact of you. And I've heard from so many folks who have read that for their kids at graduations or at wedding ceremonies, or even at, you know, very painful and, and, and difficult circumstances and moments, those people who read it out loud to themselves because nobody else is saying it to them. Hmm. And so I would want my kids to remember and know that that is the truest thing, that they are loved. Mm. Have they ever told you that what their favorite book of yours is? My son really liked Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. Mm -hmm. There was this one chapter in there has a, a chapter about prayer. And when he was quite young, I don't usually include, you know, very specific stories, but my kids in a lot of my, my books. But in that one, I had this particular story that I wanted to tell went to him and asked about it. And he was like, yeah, no, for sure. You could definitely, definitely share about that. And so I think that's maybe part of why he liked that one mm -hmm. a lot. Um, my eldest daughter really liked Jesus Feminist. Yeah. That mm -hmm. was probably her favorite. Your books are actually all over my house. Oh, Yours and Rachel's were just 
I mean, so helpful for me in my journey, but Jesus Feminist, I think has a special place in my heart because that's, I mean, I read that when I was so young, like my dad actually like brought it to me. I remember he came to my room. He was like, you have to read this book. That must be a cool feeling as a mom. You have all these people who read your stuff, right? But when your kids are reading it and absorbing it and then they go to the next one, that must be just a really, really wonderful feeling. Yeah, it, it and and terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit of both. <laughs> you probably get a lot of feedback from a lot of people about a lot of things that you write, a lot of things that you put out there, maybe even some ways that you parent. I don't even know. Um, I'm sure it's kind of a never ending. And you know, so many of us are navigating our faith journeys, but also trying to maintain relationships with friends and family, right? Which is a whole nother mm-hmm. ball game when you have friends and family whose values different from you, you're kind of evolving your faith and they're just sort of stuck in a place that you don't want to go back to. So how do you navigate situations with your kids where they've heard something that contradicts your value system or, you know, your beliefs about God? And then how do you make that shift? I'm sure it's different from when somebody who's not a part of your circle, right, has these sort of differing beliefs or says something and you're kind of like, okay, you know, like, we'll just like put that on the shelf for now. But what happens when it's in your inner circle? Because so many of our listeners have parents who are not on the same page as them or friends and family who their kids love and spend time with who aren't on the same page with them. Well, for sure. I mean, I think that's, that's definitely been the case, you know, for us, I think like, you know, for most of our friends who are listening, right. We've encountered that often. Right. And not, like you said, not just within school or, or church or the general kind of like, you know, even, you know, cultural discourse, but even, you know, within family relationships. Right. And so our kids know us and know what we believe pretty well, right? And so for the most most part, even when they heard that stuff when they were really little, they just almost didn't receive it. Wow. Like if someone would say, um, you know, oh, it's a sin to be gay, they just kind of be like, well, that's ridiculous, you know, kind of keep moving. <laughs> So it, it didn't really impact them a whole lot when they were young, because I think because they trusted us so much, because we had developed so much attachment and security with them, they kind of almost deeply connected that to their faith as well. And so they managed to handle themselves, you know, pretty well in a lot of those situations. So we do talk a lot about what we believe and why we try as well. I think, especially in those situations, whether when it's within the context of relationships to model nuance and grace uh, for people with whom we disagree, you know, kids have a very developmentally appropriate response of black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. It is entirely normal Mm -hmm. for them when they are young to be like good, bad, right, wrong, holy, evil, you know, so you can't be like shocked when that's how they want to see the world. That's, that's how they are built to see things like those things come later as they, they continue to, to, you know, develop their frontal lobe. And so, you know, teaching them how to model grace and disagreement, holding space for other people, but also knowing how to manage your boundaries, knowing when, when things are open for discussion and when they aren't, Mm. uh, paying attention to how things feel in your body, what you need from a situation, but also being aware of what other people need uh, and meeting them where they're at too, as an act of love. I mean, those are all skills. That's not just something that comes on us like magic, right? And so in some situations, for sure, I've had to intervene and speak up on their behalf, guard them, you know, protect them in a lot of instances. And, you know, sometimes that goes well, sometimes it doesn't, but they need to see me having their back when they feel vulnerable. And that matters more than almost the outcome of what is happening is them knowing the security, 
and the protection and the unconditional love and that their mom and or their dad has their back um, in that situation, no matter whether it resolves in a way that we all are happy with or not, they know that they felt backed up. You know, I remember one instance in particular, and I've talked about this before, and Joe knows I talk about this, so it's, this is fine to, to discuss, but for a really long time in their younger years, they were in a, a fairly small conservative Christian school. And there were a lot of opportunities for a lot of these kinds of conversations and learning how to do that well. But on one particular day, he was in class and he heard that conservative evangelical framing of hell, like you talked about earlier, Liz, like that whole, like God sends people to hell for not being saved and not believing in Jesus. And it's this literal lake of fire where, you know, you're punished and tortured for all eternity. And if you don't want to get, you know, sent to hell, you'd better be a Christian, but preferably our kind, you know, <laughs> preferably our kind. <laughs> right. And because, you know, Brian and I don't believe that. And we had never taught that in our home. Joe had literally never heard it spelled out so plainly before. And, uh, and he lost it, like lost it. And Joe's neurodivergent. He's, uh, he's autistic and his deep sense of justice, right. His deep sense of like right and wrong is like one of the most beautiful things about him. He's always had this really deep spirituality. He walks so closely with God. He always has. Mm -hmm. And so he found this notion, like, abhorrent like it was offensive to him horrifying even right like and he was like you know had a bit of a meltdown in class telling these kids and the teacher he's like there's no way that this is god and if it was mm. it would be like a cruel and abusive god mm. and i would never worship and believe in anything like that you know what sort of god would tell you that they loved you and would create you and then because of sin or rejection or like even like he's like what about people who you know just again all yeah. the reasons yeah. why we all reject this He's articulating that that God would be like this abusive monster. And Joe was not going to have anything to do with it. And he was not going to let it stand. Right. It was like this whole big thing. And so, you know, we worked through all of that, like for both what happened in the classroom and like, you know, he, he was right. Right. He needed some coaching on like emotional regulation and public settings and, you know, all the things <laughs> that the teacher needed some things and like what the school did. And it's like, what's appropriate, what's not like just all those kinds of things. But I remember telling Brian, in the midst of all of that, while we were kind of, you know, managing the situation, I was like, we've all gotten so used to hearing this really terrible story mm. that it's almost like everyone's forgotten. It's a really terrible story. Exactly. <laughs> if it is true, we should all be devastated like that. We should be more tenderhearted and have this better sense of God's holiness. Like Joe did, like to me, almost like it was like this check of like, no, he had the right response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that actually was the right response. And so now let's, let's move on in that. So, I mean, it does kind of depend on the kid, obviously, like, you know, my eldest daughter is more of a quiet soul. Um, you know, she holds her own counsel. And so in her case, she would hear things like that and just let it go, right. Keep moving. Mm -hmm. She knows what she thinks. She knows what we believe, you know, she's very content there. Whereas, you know, other kids who have like that overdeveloped sense of justice, you know, need to discuss it, need to point it out, need to, you know, have facts and footnotes and, you know, kind of discuss the whole thing. So for us, knowing our kids, knowing what they need, uh, knowing the developmental stage, knowing their interior lives, even, and shepherding that, I think that's all part of it. But either way, we, we just have always really wanted our, our kitchen table or our living room, our home, our relationship to kind of be the place where they get to. 
Mm. right? Where they get to ask their questions, where they get to doubt and explore spirituality and even play, um, to be angry, to question, um, to push back. And that that begins with that, that atmosphere of like non-judgment questions, modeling, even your own curiosity, being really good at saying, I don't know, but let's figure it out together. And having that undercurrent of that unconditional love, like you talked about earlier. I love that you brought up the idea of attachment and security. You know, I think a lot of us feel like we need to give our children God in some form, right? So we're like, okay, well, if we don't read the Bible, then we need to figure out this other way to give our children God. But this idea of just like security and attachment, Mm -hmm. that's like the baseline. I mean, that's like what they need as children. If we do that, we're giving them what they need, right? Mm -hmm. But so many of us didn't get that. So I love that you brought that up and talked about it and talked about how it played out in or has played out in your own parenting because it's not an easy step right it's not easy to parent that way but it's it's something that people can grab a hold of as Mm -hmm. like this can be your first step and this can be enough yeah yeah absolutely I think too even like there's that the thing that prioritizing that kind of unconditional love security attachment does it creates the environment where you're able to do that But one of the shifts that I had was realizing that it wasn't my job to introduce my kids to God, Mm. right? It was more that they are already having a very deep and long and insightful, loving conversation with God. And my job is not to get in the way. Mm. Yeah, that's so powerful. You know, to look for ways to, to cultivate that, to look for ways to open doors for that, to stoke and ignite their sense of belovedness, their sense of curiosity, the wisdom, you know, even the fruit of the spirit, right? That really does come from being deeply rooted and grounded in the love of God. When you have that same level of attachment and security with your parents, it does create a bit of an easier road to have that kind of security and attachment and love with God, or to at least yes. understand it perhaps. Yes. Not always, right? There's always a million reasons why there's, you know, and, and exceptions and, and, you know, context and nuance to all of those sorts of things. But I think that that was one of the biggest realizations I had, especially when my kids were tinies, was realizing that they were deeply spiritual and that they were having a a deep and long conversation with God. And in a lot of ways, there was a purity and and a goodness to it that I just didn't want to get in the way of. They've come from a source of love. That's like what they were born out of. So it's almost like everything else comes in and thwarts that. And so I love that you're saying that we don't have to introduce them. Like we just trust God that they're already having this deeply spiritual. Wow. That's, that's great. Uh, Thanks. We'll be right back to the rest of today's podcast episode. But first, we want to give a hearty shout out to some of our amazing and faithful Patreon supporters, Stevie Swift, Melanie Bishop, and Jennifer Winner. For just $3 a month, you can help us keep the lights on and at the same time, be a part of our private Facebook community, where you won't feel so alone in this evolving faith and parenting journey. We hope to see you there. Now back to the episode. So you have a a consistent newsletter called Field Notes. What's the one of the few of the last subjects you've tackled over the last, say, six months to a year for who received it? And what was your overarching message to them? And kind of what is your overarching message for Field Notes? What do you want people to know from that? Hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm a a wee bit all over the place with my newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) I did listen today to your 
Oh, the one okay. on the revival. Yeah, I was listening to it on my yeah, blog. So yeah, yes. Okay, okay. I uh, yeah, I started off as a blogger back in the mid aughts. You know, even before I had my first baby. So it's probably just like blogs 2.0, really. <laughs> it was deeply important to me to bring my whole life to whatever I was doing to not feel like a compartmentalized person. I don't know if this was some of this was religious baggage from my own background and things like that. But it was deeply important to me that I was the same person in public as I was in private. And that the same person who would read, you know, who would encounter me on Instagram or in field notes, uh, or on stage at a conference would be the same Sarah that they would meet if we ran into each other at the library or at my kid's school. And so um, I would for sure, you know, write about church and scripture and theology, feminism and social justice issues and these things that deeply mattered to me. But I also really needed to write about my new baby and about breastfeeding and about parenting or about books and, you know, everything that kind of went into informing that. I remember coming across a quote, I wish I could remember who said it, but it said that like most of our theology is autobiography mm. and that has certainly been true in my, my case. And so I've never really felt entirely like a fit in any one genre or category, you know, especially maybe back then, because it was like, you could either be a serious theological writer, or you could be a mommy blogger, you know, which was always mm -hmm. so a way to, you know, to discredit and diminutize women and women's writing, um, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and so this idea of, of wanting both, right, was, was always really important for me. And I think that's maybe why I called it field notes was these, you know, writings or essays really from the center of my life, mm -hmm. right, just as, as things were kind of going along. So that recent one, you know, about the Asbury revival, I wanted to explore my experiences with revival, the good, um, as well as the bad, you know, my hopes for the kids who are experiencing something, right, whatever it is, or whatever you want to call it. And even the ways that I kind of had shifted in how I view revival now. Um, and I think the overarching message there was realizing that God is here and now, mm. and that revival looks so different than maybe I had been taught or expected to understand, or the narrow teeny tiny lane that I had created for it. You know, there's been those revivals of the wilderness and, and wandering of really receiving those kinds of revelations about the um, beauty and welcome and goodness of God, yet God is always drawing near. And so I think that that's probably some of the, the themes that continue to show up there over and over again, no matter what I talk about, it can be very different week to week and has for all of these years. But I think that those themes of God's presence of God's goodness and of the love of God being the place where we belong, our actual address and permanent residence and home. Those are the themes that I'll, I'll, I'll keep going on about. I think. I don't know if you said it in, this morning in just what we were talking about earlier, the revival when you were breastfeeding and understanding mm -hmm. God a little bit differently when you were breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really cool. And that's a revival in its own way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it definitely can be right. I mean, just the teeny tiny little boxes I had created for God, just, you know, kids and the way your heart opens up for your kids and the ways that you lose your answers really quickly mm -hmm. because of your kids that will kick open a lot of doors. Yeah. And so, right. There's something to be said about this world that we're living in now where everything's an algorithm and everyone has a niche and 
you know, nobody is really a niche, you know, everyone has all of these experiences that come at them. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of write similarly, I write about mental health, and I write about motherhood. And then sometimes I write about theology and deconstruct, like, it's just sort of, but that's just because that's who I am. And that's who we are, you know, the best way that I think we can offer ourselves to the world to the world is to just be ourselves. And so mm -hmm. I really love that about you feels like an act of rebellion against like the constant like reducing us down to content creators it's like god if we're nothing else let's be human right let's just be people that was the word i thought as you're coming at it from all of your humanity and i wonder if in a way do you see this sort of as your calling you know i think sometimes that can be sort of like a little bit of a buzzword or some people t struggle with that word but do you feel like in some ways, this is something that you have been called to, or you just can't not say something, you know what I mean? Like, what is it exactly for you that got you here? That's a really interesting question. I, you know, I come from that charismatic background, so I still love those big hairy words, right? <laughs> like those deeply complex ones with like steamer trunks of baggage, like calling and vocation. <laughs> like I just, I love them so much and I can't stop using them. And so you know, I, I stumbled into this fairly um, organically, to be honest with you. I think especially getting started, there was no lane for writers like me or, or leaders like me. It just, it didn't really exist, right? I don't know any, any time in the history of the church where anyone has cared what some happy clappy mom from Western Canada thinks about anything to do with church and theology and scripture. <laughs> like just never, right? And so I, I think the, the advent of the internet opened up doors that would not have existed for me in any other generation. I think the moment in time in which I showed up um, was probably part of that as well. It developed into a sense of calling and a sense of vocation for me, for sure, you know, but it was not, not anything I, I imagined or, or really saw kind of, of, of being there. I, I felt very called to write. I didn't really know where or what that would look like. Um, and so for a lot of ways, I was writing my way through my life as it was kind of happening. And I, I think I wrote my on the internet for no less than seven years before anyone paid any attention. And I look back on that now as a tremendous mercy. And mm -hmm. I have a lot of compassion for a lot of young people in their 20s and 30s in that very white hot center of deconstruction. And, and oftentimes, which is accompanied by a lot of trauma and a lot of grief, who have a very high level of spotlight on them. That would be a, a really hard thing to walk through, I think. So I got to do a lot of that in the shadows and in some quiet spaces, sloppy stuff all over. And even doing that stuff like around boundaries, I learned my boundaries by getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the stakes were smaller and I was able to get some things wrong. I had to look back, especially with my, I mean, you know, with my eldest daughter in particular, I look back on some of the things that I wrote when she was like three, four, five, six years old. And I just... It, it grieves me that I would share some things that were so tender to her. And I remember having, I remember coming across this article. I want to say it was in the New York post about Madeline Lingell, who is one of my favorite authors, um, more from a nonfiction perspective than even her fiction. And I like her fiction quite a lot, but her, um, I was a big reader of like her Crosswicks journals, which she wrote about through her life. And I saw some models there for me in terms of writing of like, okay, this is how you write as a woman fully embedded in your life. Um, yet deeply spiritual and what it looks like to wrestle with those things. But I remember reading this article in your post 
um, where they were talking about some of the complexities of that and how her kids resented how she would take their lives and impose her own narrative on them. Mm -hmm. And I felt like literally like caught by the collar by the Holy Spirit. And it was like, is that what I'm doing? Am I imposing my own narrative on the spiritual lives of my children? Mm-hmm. And ever since then, it has been just kind of this check or this, this boundary that I've had my children and our conversations and our life and their spiritual lives and, and everything that we do within the sanctuary and cathedral of our relationship. It is not content. It is not copy. And they need to know that there is a high level of protection and care that they aren't worried that every, every deep conversation they have with me is going to turn into a caption. Mm. Right. And they have good content. They're good kids. (laughs) 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 It would be great. you know. (laughs) Yeah. And so that was a huge shift for me. And it would probably happen about 10, even, even 12 years ago, I remember. And so that was a huge shift for me in terms of those boundaries and in terms of saying, okay, I can talk about how I'm encountering things. I can even talk about my experiences, but I'm very wary of imposing the spiritual narrative on my children's lives. Yeah. We just project onto our, especially now at this stage, right? As they're teenagers and they're on the internet. I mean, God almighty, there's nothing more terrifying than when your 15 year old tells you they Googled you in class, like (laughs) you don't want to be reading 90% of what people write about your mother on the internet, you know? (laughs) who do not care for me you know (laughs) yeah those are just things that happen as as you begin to maybe even have that shift of realizing the differentiation and the change and their own autonomy their own agency um, them being in control of those things and I think that's probably a generational thing because we're the first ones who really had that kind of access to the internet and and overshared the way that we did in the early aughts and or you know 2010s I think people know better now Um, yeah but that was that was a slow learn I think we have our mantra is grace and space. That's the name of our newsletter. And we always say we want grace for who we have been and who we are now and then space for who we're becoming. So if you had one thing in your life right now that you were, you're working really hard to either give yourself grace or space for, what is that? Like something maybe in the future that you, you're putting in practice now to give yourself room for space or something in the past you're consistently needing to give yourself grace for? Hmm. That's a good question. That is a good question. I, and I think that it would be different at different stages, maybe of my life. Like I remember when the kids were really little, just needing to give myself a lot of grace for the fact that like, I'm an introvert in a busy mm-hmm. family of six with a lot of, of a lot of words. <laughs> and so making room in those days for the fact that I needed quiet or that I needed alone time. Um, when a lot of the narrative, especially towards Christian women, right. It's like, Oh, you're not allowed to need anything to, and so having that grace and realizing like I was a better mom when I honored who I really was wow. instead of who I thought I should be, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that was the same thing with work. Like I'm a better mom when I'm working and I'm pursuing my vocation. I'm a better mom when I'm honoring who I actually am, you know? And so when they were little, like, you know, doing those things like prioritizing naps and, you know, early bedtimes and quiet times, it wasn't just because it was good for them. And it was like, but it was, listen, I, I'm going to read my novel instead of emptying the dishwasher. <laughs> I don't do what I need to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's been a lot of times in our, you know, journey that I've needed a lot of grace you know, I was one kind of mom for my older kids and a very different mom for my younger. 
you know, and that's a thing that I think those of us who have multiple kids over a lot of years understand. Um, you're learning to parent all over again with the things that you did and didn't do well the first time around. You know, it's a lot of grace learning how to forgive yourself. Um, you know, you make a lot of mistakes out of ignorance. And then, you know, it's like Maya Angelou said, right? When you when you know better, you do better. You know, learning how to apologize and talk things through. I think probably the two that jumped to mind. The first one is giving myself grace about trying not to assign my own religious baggage to my kids of not weighing them down <laughs> with my own stuff, right? Like I, that was a kind of an, an early thing. And it's something that especially now is in these teenage years as they are, I think, especially coming out of the, the pandemic and these last few years of political upheaval, you know, um, my kids are, are very um, engaged and very highly aware of a lot of those things. They struggle with the disconnect and what they see from people who claim to follow Christ as well. And so for us, like some of the things I need grace for is like, yeah, I, I can, I'm always learning from my own history and my own past, but my stuff can't be their burden to bear either. And so starting from where they are, as opposed to where I was or where I am even, right. If that makes sense. And so uh, meeting them where they are in their stories, instead of being like, well, and here's, here's everything that I remember from the eighties, you know, <laughs> it's just, right. I don't know that that's theirs to carry and it doesn't need to be, I don't need to drag them back to where I was. I want to join them where they are now mm -hmm. and keep moving forward with them. So that I think something I've needed a lot of grace for, you know, learning to name what I'm for and not just what I'm against with them. Mm has been a big thing too, for me, right? Like being against things is helpful and it's necessary. Like I'm never going to be someone who kind of tries to create this really hard and fast binary there. But I think at this stage of their lives, as they are, you know, especially my older kids getting closer and closer to launch and I'm moving less and less into a manager role and more and more into a consultant role. <laughs> it has been helping them learn to not just name what they are against, but also what they are hoping for. And mm -hmm. to create that room to imagine something better and more just and more loving to, to put their energy and lean, um, you know, more into that. And I think right now too, I'm even trying to make some space and some grace for those changes are coming, right? My eldest is, is it's stirring up a lot in me, right? Like we were at this university fair um, a couple months ago, getting all the information for school and this next stage of life. And she's in this line for the University of Calgary. And I just kind of like looked up at her, you know, she's six feet tall. All my kids are really tall. And my husband's from Nebraska. He's like six, five. They're all, <laughs> they're all taller than me, like from a very young age. But I remember looking up at her and this thought came to me like, well, I guess that was it. Like, I guess that, I guess that was your childhood. Hmm. Right. And I, I just very nearly lost it there in, in the atrium. And I remember her looking at me like, do not cry at this <laughs> if you value your life. Right. So it was like, get it together. But, but realizing that has, has kind of been a whole thing. Right. And for sure, you know, I have younger kids still who are, you know, we have a lot of years ahead of us, but there's something really, I think, sacred and important about noticing these, these shifts and these big changes about honoring them. That was it. We, we had her childhood together and, and now it's done. And mm. I, I almost can't believe it. Like, I almost can't believe how fast it ended up being in my head. I think she's still every age that she ever has been. And I'm so incredibly proud of her, but I can't quite get my head around the fact that that was it. Mm. Yeah. 
with you. Solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole thing, right? I remember like when I would like be in the grocery store, especially when I had my first three and four years and I'd have like a baby on my chest and one in the cart and another one hanging on. And every person who encountered me said some variation of like, well, you've sure got your hands full yeah. and me being like, that's super helpful. Thank you. You know, <laughs> our things would fall off the shelves at the grocery stores in our wake, you know, like whatever. Right. And there'd always be some lady who would stop and she'd be teary eyed and she'd say, enjoy it. It goes so fast. And I'd be like, I think this is justifiable homicide. And now I catch myself here, right? Like all these years later being like, God, this is how it works, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I know. I think I've written that a couple of times where I'm like, now I'm that weird mom in grocery stores. Oh. Like, oh, it goes so fast. And then I have to catch myself like, do not say that. Do not. Do not. Say do not. My sister and I made a solemn vow with each other when our kids, because we had all of our babies all really close together. So we, the two of us had five kids in four years together. I remember us telling each other, like swearing. Over our, over our sleeping children, we will never forget that this was hard. We will, we will, we promise we will never be those women who look at other women with small children and say, enjoy it. It goes so fast. Carpe diem. You've got to treasure every moment. We were like, we will not forget. <laughs> and I've held to that bell, but two things can yes. be true at the same time. It can feel like it went really fast and it can be hard at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I absolutely can. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming and talking with us. This has been fabulous. And lastly, if people don't know, and I'm sure they do, can you just tell people where they can find you? Yeah, sure. So I, I think probably the best hub is just over at sarahbessie.com. It has links to uh, all my books. It has links to the Evolving Faith Community, which mm -hmm. has a conference and a podcast, but um, also an online community. And there's even like a lot of conversations about parenting happening there with a lot of like-minded folks, probably um, links to the newsletter, uh, all the social media handles, everything's all, all right there. Thank you so much again for coming on. We really thank appreciate you so it. much. Oh, it's been a joy. And thank you so much for all your work and all the space that you're creating for these rich and necessary conversations. I'm just so grateful. I wish this had existed all these years ago. And I'm just so grateful that you're creating it. This is such yeah. a... And Thank you know you. how like when you would go to church, I mean, this is just me, but I would go to church when my kids were little and I'd almost resent it because it'd be like, I never sat in the service. Yes. I was always like out in the hallway or out in the foyer or in the, in the, you know, the Sunday school room with, you know, you, with your boobs out nursing your kids with other women. And all of a sudden I realized like, actually that's my favorite part of church is yeah. the people who are like in the foyer with the kids who won't sit still. And the ones who are like, you know, sitting around with their top around their middle, and it was like, actually, this is the best conversations. And this feels kind of like that. Thanks, Sarah. All right, thanks. Well, that's it for this episode on the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on both of our websites, EstherJoyGets.com and ElizabethPetters.com, as well as our brand new website, DeconstructingMamas.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review where you listen and especially tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.